Bina Sarkar Elias stole my heart from the time I met her a few years back in a poetry extravaganza where I was the master of ceremonies and Bina headlined a stellar galaxy of poets. She was there with her husband, the renowned photographer Rafiq, and I knew I was in the presence of two wonderful souls from the first hello. Her poetry had a power which her slender frame and gentle voice belied and as i came to know the breadth of her interests and the depth of her commitments to causes i became a lifelong fan bina is the very definition of a renaissance woman if there ever was one ode to utopia it was as if the sky was washed clean sparkling like a new minted coin it was as if it believed in hope as if the dark clouds were in exile banished forever it was as if the storm had taken a sabbatical and become a monk in the mountains as if politicians had drunk from the sea of soma and surrendered as slaves of peace as if their corrupt skins and scheming minds had peeled away i'm sunil bhandari and you are listening to red river sessions presented to you by uncut poetry in red river sessions we talk to published poets about their poetry the craft and what haunts them it is brought to you by red river which is the premier independent publisher of poetry books and uncut poetry a much loved poetry podcast bina sarkar elias is a poet she is editor designer and publisher of international gallery a global arts and ideas journal founded by her in 1997 She is also an art curator having curated several important exhibits of renowned artists. She taught herself graphic design and has been invited by artists, galleries, photographers and a poet to design their books and catalogs. Her books of poetry include The Room, Fuse, When Seeing is Believing and the latest Song of a Rebel and other selected poems brought to the world. by Red River Publishers. Her poems have been translated into Arabic, Urdu, French, Greek and Chinese and Fuse has been taught at the Towson University in Maryland, USA. Hi Bina, how are you? I'm good, good as good can be. This interview is a long time coming. in indeed you know but it has to happen when it has to happen it it works for everything i think i think it works more for meeting goddesses <laughs> <laughs> well i don't know about goddesses because i am i am a non believer and uh, the goddesses for me are nature and flowers and all of that you know so um So yes, I believe in nature. Oh, it makes sense. You know, people are so surprised when I tell them we don't have a temple in our home and everybody's astounded. And they say not even in an image, a little statue, something a Ganesh or something at all. And I say no, because for me my mom and dad are my god and goddesses. Everything I've learned is from them, and that's good enough. Absolutely. You know, I I feel the same. honestly your latest book is called song of a rebel so would that describe you well a person with music and poetry in her heart but rebellion on her mind does that kind of sound like you <laughs> well sunil i never intended to be a rebel i just became one i i guess it's a response to those who assault us with injustice and lack of compassion when you see all of it happening around you you have to respond in some way um you you can't just be a spectator hmm. so i guess that's how 
this this uh, part of me arose so is it something which you've seen um you grow into or is it something that you have found you always had a streak of as you were growing that you could not see something in the form of an injustice happening anywhere around you without putting your foot down well i don't think i was born with it but it was a it was which like call it a gift that came to me in my childhood or as you as you say a flower which life handed to me as and it was as early as in class 4 when uh-huh. i was a student and um it was um, you know the first day of being in the fourth standard and during roll roll call the teacher called out my name uh-huh. and my name toputi sarkar you know oh. and and she which was how i was registered in school uh-huh. but the four, first four years since kindergarten my classmates and teachers called me tapati okay which was sacrilege to me <laughs> so by the fourth standard i had enough so oh. when the teacher called out tapati sarkar i did not raise my hand nor did i stand up uh-huh. and just as she was about to mark me absent i got up and said teacher my name is actually bina not tapati mm-hmm. um and and then you know she had this you know um, surprised look on her face and she said but you you're you're enrolled as uh, tapati so mm-hmm. i said well in bengali it is toputi but mm-hmm. actually uh, my name is bina and uh, i i'm not to be called uh, tapati or toputi whatever so mm-hmm. she marched me off to the principal and she related the whole thing to the principal and said now what should i assign her as tapati or bina so then the principal <laughs> called my older sister um, and i kind of winked at her almost or i made i was i had such an anxious look on my face so she played along and she said yes she's actually bina ah. and and that was when i named myself officially are you serious on the spur of a moment yeah yeah and bina came actually from the tail end of bella bambina which is what our gracious neighbor one auntie desuza used to call me and since then i am bina and that was when i was 10 years old <laughs> and that's that's when i started writing poetry as well especially you know um a uh, post examination when i would wait for the others to finish i'd sit uh-huh. and scribble behind my question paper little poems and uh, that's how it all started <laughs> so, so it, it was something written that when the name comes the poetry also starts flowing there's yeah. something which is conjoined <laughs> i think this is amazing It's like it. so so tell me uh I, I, i'm very intrigued so you're on a in a drawing room or on the dining table with your parents and your siblings and discussions are flowing all over were you known in your family as someone who had strong views about things not really not not as a child as a child i was i mean e- even though i responded the way i did when i was 10 i i was a, a proper child child in the sense that in those days there we were not precocious as today's kids are you know and uh-huh. we're just happy playing hide and seek and you know innocent games and um, all of that so it was only only as one was growing older and entering the teens mm-hmm. that um a, a lot of awareness happened and reading helped um i started i i, I was an avid reader from a very early age and by the mm-hmm. time i was 13 14 i had read um burton russell and all of them and those wow. that kind of reading shaped my uh, my own thinking and um yes so so that that was the kind of evolution 
Reading Russell at the age of 13 is quite interesting. How did you gravitate towards that? It's not a very natural author to encounter at that age. Was there an influence in, in, in your school or a friend or was it your parents? No. Or it just not, as per chance? Per chance, not really my parents because um, my, my mother was um, a very beautiful woman. She was a national award winning actor and she was always um, busy in her own little world and my dad used to travel a lot and um, so uh, very quiet times at home but there were lots of books at home mm -hmm. and I used to prowl around the books and read uh, sometimes what I'm not supposed to read okay. like uh, Lolita so wow <laughs> so, <laughs> so so I recall you know my my uncle my younger Choto Mama who used to live with us he was reading Lolita and he had put it behind the books in the bookshelf so I had noticed him doing that and that raised mm. my curiosity of course of course <laughs> so when he was not there I pulled it out and I sat behind the sofa and read the book my god this is and amazing. um yeah so things like that you know and and then it was very strange my reading kept uh growing and uh in the 10th standard you know during class i was being very naughty i was reading lust for life um wow you know, and, yes. yes, yes. And I was, uh, I had kept it between a book and I was reading it and I got caught <laughs> and I, I was marched <laughs> off to the principal and the book was confiscated. And I, the teacher told me, this is not the age for you to read Lust for Life. You know, you have to mm. wait another four or five years. So, <laughs> but later they gave me back the book and I still have the book, you know, a weathered copy sitting in my shelf here now. Wow. wow. So, uh, yeah, so those were days of curiosity and, and uh, learning and, you know, uh, delightful, delightful years. And I think the universe pushes us towards things which we in any case would have gravitated towards at some point in our lives. Indeed. So when I went to Calcutta for my college and I was in Scottish Church College, the kind of, um, you know, people who gravitated towards me or I towards them mm. uh, were those who had a very good sense of reading. And uh, so it, it was like in 1968 that I was introduced to Kafka and Camus and, you know, existentialism, Sartre. So those were the books I was reading in those days. And Coffee House was our meeting place where we would sit and talk about, you know, what we read. And uh, so th that, that's how reading became a very integral part of growing up you know. Fabulous. So um, college was something which continued your spree towards this kind of reading. Did it also change your life in ways where um, protest became a part of life? Because Calcutta has always been a hotbed of hot thinking and politics and youthful uh, ardor towards things which uh, you, you you know get the blood flowing so right, was it something right. which uh, kind of uh, made you uh, gravitate towards these things indeed very much i was a bombay girl who knew nothing about politics as such you know mm. I was into philosophy and literature but uh, in Calcutta the years uh, if, if you uh, recall those years you know 67 to 71 mm. which mm. were my college years uh, those were very turbulent times the Nokshal period and right. we, we were constantly you know out marching uh, doing sit down strikes at Dalhousie and so many protests I remember at Elphinstone College once we were all protesting and the police came and it it was uh, 
uh, a surreal situation which uh, which is still so vivid in my mind so um, yes we were we, i was totally drawn into protest and politics mm. at that time and uh, and and that uh, i i don't know if you will call it the rebel in me but definitely mm-hmm. i was i wanted to a protest every wrong every injustice i felt i had to say something you know and and that shaped my later years until today you know so uh, that's who i am i you know when when i had children my kids were like really little i used mm. in bombay when we we used to live in japan for 5 years and then we came back and uh, and then that whole thing started again you know the the 5 years in japan were idyllic and um, very different and when we came mm. back uh, all that was happening in india again you know was so fresh and and uh, right there so whether it was the bhivandi riots or whatever mm. i was out there you know and my kids were little so i used to take them with me uh, hoist them onto the truck and go with the procession and um, yes that was very part of me until today i am there for every you know protest meeting in uh, bombay now now of course in the last one year i can feel <laughs> uh, a little bit of uh, uh, weariness yeah yeah but but i still still try to attend and be there in solidarity with you know those who are protesting do you ever get disillusioned because i can well imagine that the establishment always hits back um uh, with, with everything they have to uh, keep the status quo on uh yes uh, unfortunately the establishment they are steamrolling over everyone everything we protest about you know like mm. say the coastal road right now in bombay they're destroying marine life they're cutting thousands of trees and we go out and protest and protest but they just you know they dismiss mm. us and they continue th- with the work so this this is what is happening but that does not make me lose hope and mm. i feel that um if i if i lost hope or if my contemporaries who feel like me lost hope then we're all dead you know mm. i mm. i feel we must um keep hope alive and we must keep fighting and um expressing what we need to express you know and mm. and um we will be heard i'm sure we will be heard it it things could be i guess a lot worse you know mm. if we did not talk or mm. our voices mm. were not heard mm. um i mean they're trying the 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 privileged leaders you know are trying to maim us and you know what's happened to harshmandar right you know so uh, they're trying in every which way but we will not be quiet we will we will protest um unfortunately because of the pandemic they're taking more advantage of the situation yes, yes, you know yes so we cannot go out on the streets and protest even though they come out um in in uh, the to the uh, mela in hardwar or wherever you know the mm. they will come out in droves but they won't let you come out to protest you know so um that is unfortunately the situation but we have to continue i believe that would you go so far as to say that all the dystopian literature which we have read handmade and stale or anything do you think that is something which is no longer just science fiction is it something you feel could well be where we are slowly drifting towards exactly it is in fact we are living science fiction right now that's what i mm. say the last two years have been surreal and and i feel we're living science fiction every day um uh, 
uh, what whatever uh, many of these writers you know uh, envisioned mm. years ago uh, whether it was Orwell or anyone it's it's all it's yeah, all happening yeah. you know it's all happening now and uh, i'm just terrified of what mm. the future generations will experience like i Truly. i feel i'm on my way out but i i don't want the grandchildren to you know um have have a difficult time mm, mm, mm. and uh, be robbed of all their liberties you know so which is so true yeah it it's such a greed for power and control you know that's what it is where did poetry come into your life well poetry i i told you i started scribbling when i was very right. young right. but i never i never um i was a closet poet all my life i never revealed what i wrote okay and uh never never you know i was the editor of the school magazine but i never um, shared my poems with <laughs> anyone and uh, strangely uh i think about 20 years ago uh, 20 years ago uh you know i had met shudeep sen in london uh-huh. um, because uh, he had in those days there was no <clears throat> email and all that but uh-huh. he had sent me a letter or something uh saying that he was in london and if i go there i should meet him and he would like to contribute to gallery you know okay. and i had started gallery in 97 uh-huh. so um so when i was there i met him and and you know we chatted and um I think he was the first person I revealed to that I I used that I write. And so years later when he came back to India he said can I read what you write and I sent him something and then he said do you have any more uh, such poems I sent him some more and he said my goodness what are you doing with these I said nothing I just write <laughs> so uh, he came out with a chapbook of the poems on his own how wonderful huh. and um, I, i think uh, yeah so uh, it was that was the first time and i was taken aback because i didn't think my poems were worth you know sharing with anyone or i was kind of very uh, inhibited so anyway he came out with that and then mm-hmm. gradually gradually i said okay not bad you know let me <laughs> let me work it's it's fun sharing you know when someone yes. listens and appreciates and you feel like okay let me share some more and then that's how the first book happened fuse okay. after Wonderful. that you know the Wonderful. first one was the room which um Shudi brought out the room okay. it was a chapbook and um and then fuse which uh, hemandipte brought out okay poetry wala mm. yeah and then it went on from there so do you do you write poetry as a discipline an urge or a response uh no um no no uh, so so when fuse happened it it um it attracted strangely a lot of attention so mm-hmm. uh, a mandarin version came out edit edition and then um, a professor in towson university in the us he decided to teach it to his university wow. yes what so a, it was what a privilege taught, it was taught there and and then and he sent me all the papers that the students wrote you know on on the book and so that was very interesting when i when the poems reached young people and their mm. responses were so interesting so um i decided okay then i can you know write some uh, sure, get some sure. more published so gradually right. whenever i had time because I, all my time is taken up by gallery so mm. i when i have time i will make some more manuscripts and that's right. how i made the second one and the third one and 
And How beautiful. Like Do tell us about Fuse a little bit. What what was the uh, thematic direction of the book? It, it was not thematic. Um, it was um, just all the poems that were in my closet. They came uh-huh. out into that book. How lovely is that? So, so there are different kinds of poems, you know. And so it's, it's divided into chapters where... Uh, each kind fits into a certain theme. Mm. That's why I fuse various themes in one. Do you think it's important for a poet to be a mirror? Because in your personal life, you do have a a life which uh, involves standing up for what you feel is not right. Does poetry have to reflect something from society? Or is poetry first personal and then universal? I think uh, it's it's it, it can be personal and and yet uh, also universal. When you when it resonates with others, it becomes universal. You know, whether whether it's it's a poem about the sky or the river, uh, or it's a political poem. Um, as as long as it, resonates with others it becomes universal mm-hmm. <clears throat> and and uh, i feel i feel that um, somehow uh, politics is something that is in all of us there are mm. some people who shut it out of course and that's also a political act of mm. of shutting it out you know mm. so mm. it's it's in all of us and I feel it's important to speak for the world. As I said earlier, mm. it's important to speak and and be heard in some form or the other. You know, think think of the um, the music and the songs uh, of long ago. You know, which mm-hmm. still people sing today. You know, mm. that mm. inspires mm. you or uplifts you. And I think that itself is a contribution. How have you evolved as per your reckoning as a poet from one book of yours to the next? You know, if you use the scales of feeling, subject, technical competence. I I don't know, Sunil, frankly, because I, I would leave that for someone else to judge mm-hmm. because um, I just... I just write, you know, and that's it, you know. (laughs) I I don't analyze my own writing. And uh, once written, I don't think too much about it because some other thoughts preoccupy me, you know. So um, I would leave it to others to judge or decide, you know. This is Red River Sessions, presented to you by Uncut Poetry, the much-loved poetry podcast, and I am Sunil Bhandari, and we are in conversation with Bina Sarkar Elias, the renowned poet, editor, designer, publisher, and art curator. Let's change tracks, uh, Bina. Your husband is Rafiq Elias, the photographer and the documentary filmmaker who needs absolutely no introduction. So is there a story as to how you met him and got married? I'm sure it couldn't have been a cakewalk. No, it wasn't. In fact, you know, uh, in uh, 1971, when I came from Calcutta to Bombay back, I joined the Xavier's Institute of Mass Communications because I was passionate about being a filmmaker. And and I was studying cinematography and camera uh, work and script writing and direction and all of that. And because in Calcutta, I used to watch Russian films and East European films, and those, you know, had become my second skin, and, and I wanted to be a right. filmmaker. And then, uh, so when I was directing a play which we would film, uh, uh, Rafiq came as uh, one of our team members brought him to audition for <laughs> one of the roles in the play. <laughs> 
So we we were all of twenty or something at that time, okay. and uh, so I was very stern with him. I was a Calcutta girl <laughs> in my, you know, tatty shari and my glasses, and I very sternly asked him. So when was the last time you acted? And he just stared at me and said, "Well, it was about eighteen years ago. I was um, teddy bear in kindergarten." <laughs> <laughs> I love this. <laughs> so I said, "Oh my gosh, this guy is crazy," and uh, <laughs> and that's how we met. And then, of course, uh, when it after three years we decided to marry and and my dad you know because he comes from a muslim family and sure. i come from a hindu family and although mm. both of us what connected us also because we are east and west or north and south you know but mm-hmm. what connected us was that we were both non believers that we were both humanists that we had a lot of creative things in common mm. and um, so i told my dad i want to meet uh, marry this guy and my dad said uh, he liked him immediately but he said look the religion thing is a problem mm. uh, even though you don't believe uh, what will happen to your children so i said in those days you had children by default you know it's mm. not like mm. you decide no i'm not going to have kids but yeah, yeah. so 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 we said well i, I told her but the kids can choose their own religion if they want or not have mm. a religion if they want mm. it's up to them it's their journey so he said okay uh, meanwhile uh, if you really want to marry him i think you should take a break from him for some months and stay away and and then after that if you still want to marry him then you go ahead so i went away to japan and i i was in tokyo and after four months rafiq arrived <laughs> in tokyo <laughs> and then so much for the break <laughs> <laughs> he arrived after uh, four months and then we got married at, at the indian embassy uh, which was just a, uh, you know we had uh, registered ourselves and uh, our wedding day was uh, going and signing and mm-hmm. then we walked out and um, we had a bucket of kentucky fried chicken oh my god and that was it that was our wedding so but but pre signing is another story which i'll tell you <laughs> another time because that was okay. hilarious how we got to the indian embassy that day you know oh because, my god you do, uh, you don't have a dull moment in your life do you <laughs> <laughs> no it was a lot of fun it was a lot of fun no so that's how we lived there for 5 years and he was working in an ad agency i was teaching at the american school and um yeah and then our son was born and then we came back and our daughter was born you know i, I just want to dwell on this this incredible wedding of yours because you've completed 50 years of your marriage you know and, no actually uh, it's 50 years of having met we met in 1971 met. Okay. Okay. and uh this is 9 uh, 2021 okay okay so okay. um Fair enough. yes it's 50 years of meeting which is like marriage anyway which is like us. marriage anyway yes. absolutely so in conservative hindu families the concern which your father had is still prevailing after all these years nothing has changed or maybe a little bit but again it's a choice which children make families will always say something which is very close to what your father said what has your experience both of you being together with different religions uh, you know how has that evolved has it ever been a hindrance where has it worked where hasn't it worked well in that sense you know our families were very um uh, accommodating once we 
were married and had kids so uh, it it was very different then but in- initially of course his parents wanted me to convert but he put his foot down and said right. no way because i'm not a believer i can't expect her to convert you know mm-hmm. so um things like that but they got used to us and they realized that even if we were not believers we were not harmful people you know so so we were not terrorists or whatever so um, yes so over the years things smoothened out and things were fine yeah and i think i don't think it matters anymore no not at all not at all i love the names of your children yuki raul such unusual names so are they inspired by someone or something Well, Raul, our son, who was born first, happened because you know after he was born, we couldn't find think of a name for him, and for six months he had no rain a name, and uh, our Japanese friends would laugh and say Muzukashi Chan. Muzukashi in Japanese means difficult, you know, difficulty because we we had so much difficulty finding a name. Ah. So and then one day when we were driving to a friend's house for. dinner in the car we said again oh my gosh now everyone's going to ask us what's your son's name and what should we say and and while we were talking we were also discussing cuba and we were discussing um, you know fidel castro and raul castro and then when we when i said raul i said hey how about raul because ah. raul also sounds uh, it came from raul castro but it also sounds like rahul correct and, and yet it's not rahul it's you know mm. people won't be able to identify and slot you immediately you know right right so when we when we are, the thing is people love putting things in boxes you know and i like to be out of the box so um, so uh, when we arrived at the dinner they asked oh what a cute little boy what's his name i said raul and that's it <laughs> it was like beena that <laughs> it's like beena history continues in the family <laughs> indeed and and yuki oh it's a japanese name yuki means snow mm. um uh, yukiko is snow child and yuki happened to be named by our son because okay. uh, when uh, she was born the year we returned to india and rahul was like almost three and a half at that time and uh, you know in the last days of pregnancy i told him rahul you're going to have a little sister or a brother if you have a brother what would you call him he said tuck so i said oh my goodness wow <laughs> uh, and and if it's a girl if it's a little sister what would you call her and he said yuki and oh. then i said how would you know if if it's a girl so he said why when she comes out she'll have ribbons in her hair <laughs> so <laughs> oh i love this <laughs> <laughs> so that's how yuki got named been a international gallery it's now i think in its 24th or 25th year of publication it's an award winning global arts and ideas journal which you edit design publish it's such an amazing publication i have seen the last issue i'm it, it, i was completely blown over it's so wonderful it really startles you as you uh, go from page to page the way it's produced the photo essays they're so wonderful so what was the genesis of this incredible journal uh thank you for appreciating gallery because gallery is 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 me in a way um, uh it it happened because you know when we came back to india and mm. i i was a mom for 9 years i wasn't working so it kind of took the confidence out of me and uh before i went to japan i was uh, assistant editor to a a film magazine mm-hmm. and i also worked as um as sub 
editor at a magazine called Eve's Weekly. And okay. I used to write a lot. I had columns in various papers, statesmen, junior statesmen. In those days, mm-hmm. we had junior Desmond statesmen. Desmond Doig, of course. Desmond Doig. He used to, in fact, Desmond Doig, when I was leaving for Japan, he told me, listen, Bina, you have to send me four articles every month. And um, once I went there, I just switched off you know so when I came back and the kids were little I lost all confidence in myself Mm. Um, and then I realized but I have to work so Rafiq uh, being in advertising as he was in those days he had on our return started his own ad agency in Bombay Mm. so I started going to the office um, as a creative uh, end of the agency so okay. I, I would be involved in the creatives but uh, i realized in a few years that this was not my scene that mm. advertising was totally um, uh, opposing mm. to w- what i felt about everything in life and um, i felt i had to do something on my own which which i kind of give birth to and create and being always interested in the arts and poetry and cinema and photography I uh, thought of doing gallery and uh, so I came up with the concept and the idea and uh, and and I just went for it okay uh, how did you choose the format um, it, it's it's unusually sized and uh, it's sumptuously produced for someone who's starting out, it's a very unusual way of producing. Or was it something different and has evolved along the years? No, it it, it has evolved. Uh, when we started, it had a different look. The cover had a different look. Okay. And uh, what inspired me to do that size was because in those days, there was a magazine called, a French magazine called Verve. And... Uh-huh. Uh, that magazine was amazing in its layout and um, and uh, the the photography was mm-hmm. outstanding and mm. so that kind of inspired me and, and I always uh, aspire to do uh, to work towards excellence not to compromise you know and mm. I'm terrified of mediocrity so um, I I thought of doing this and then there was a young graphic designer who used to work with Rafiq at the ad agency mm-hmm. and I told him my idea and I, I, I said I don't have money to pay you but can you help me with the initial design so right. he came up with the initial design and uh, after uh, six issues that's three years he, mm-hmm. he, he started growing and today he's a big time design person uh, that time he was very young but he got very big busy in advertising and he said I mean I'm sorry I can't do any more you know mm. so I uh, didn't have the money to um, uh, to hire a designer or an artwork mm. layout person so mm. I taught myself how to do it uh, uh, in the office computer and um, I would watch the uh, art director work and I would learn you know watching him and then I taught myself the whole process and I started doing it from the seventh issue onwards uh, entirely and then I changed the whole uh, design also uh, most of it it's very different from what it was initially I see that it's jam-packed with contributions from poets and writers and photographers from all over the world how do you curate it Obviously, it's uh, fairly thematic because it addresses a country or a theme. So how do you go about it? Uh, are, the, are these all original articles or are these uh, things which you have told certain writers to write? How does how does the process work? Well, um, it's either, as you uh, say rightly, it's, it's region-oriented or thematic. And when it's region-oriented, I go to the region and I research it myself, whether it's Afghanistan or Palestine or Central Asia. I've been to all these places. I, I go God. and spend a month. And uh, in fact, when I went to Afghanistan, 
Afghanistan. It was it was exactly three weeks after the Indian embassy was bombed in Kabul. And um, I went there and people thought I was insane, but I went and I stayed for a whole month and uh, researched the issue. I travel and I do everything alone. I go alone. I, I stay mm. alone. And um, so that, that's how it gradually evolved. And it's very hands-on, very... Um, uh, I, I meet every artist I, mm-hmm. and then I select whom I, uh, whether it's an artist or a poet or a photographer right. and, and a filmmaker, I, I select what I want and then it's literally curated and then then I compile it together. It's, it's a long process. That's why it's just two issues a year. Oh, it shows. I can well imagine something of this kind wouldn't come in a hurry. You know, it's beautifully produced and so wonderfully curated. Thank you, Sunil. Thank you. Bina, how did Red River come into your life? Well, um, I think I chanced upon Deepa and uh, I I cannot remember exactly. Maybe we communicated a bit and uh, I'm I'm a little um, uh, inhibited about uh, approaching publishers. You know Mm. what I mean? Yeah, and yeah. Um, I uh, I'm very uneasy about doing that, and uh, and somehow I don't know I found him a very gentle person, and I felt okay. Let me share, you know, and and he was very open to publishing um, Song of a Rebel. So do tell about Song of a Rebel. There is a, a thematic congruity of deep angst and indignation. So is this something which you wrote over a span of a few months in one consorted concert of output? Because there's so much uh, which flows through it, which has a thematic connect. How did the evolution of the book come? Well, it's it's not a recent um, series of writing. It's it's over the years, whatever I have felt, I have put down. And as I said, I'm not a very organized person. Mm. So I keep writing and sometimes I lose what I write. And sometimes they pop up somewhere. And that's how it's very difficult for me to make a manuscript because you know it's scattered all over the place but i somehow put these together and and uh, and because uh, diba is so good with artistic he he mm. decided to do the design uh, inside and and thematically it worked because uh, the last uh, two years have been uh, you know you know how it yes, has been. Yes, and yes. it seemed the right time to just share the poems that have uh, anger or, you know, um, one is uh, disturbed and mm. to share such poems. That's that's how this this particular book happened. But before this, there was another book. I don't know if you know about it, When Seeing is Believing. So that's a book of ekphrastic poems. And uh, I write a lot of uh, poems in response to images or visual. You know, it's like, uh, how do you say, hieroglyphic poems, you know. Uh, and uh, most uh, most of my poems uh, uh, emerge from imagery, whether it's, it's uh, what I'm seeing in art or in real life or what I'm imagining, visuals that I'm imagining in my head. So um, when seeing is believing is is uh, a book of images and poetry. How wonderful. That must have been a very interesting one. Uh, yeah, I, I like it, but it, it uh, you know, some some people, one, one, uh, one lady bought 200 books for her. Uh, for gift giving but uh, after that uh, in Spain someone came out with a book of Spanish translations of my poems so several books have happened in, in between in a in a very nice gentle manner that's <laughs> and of course anthologies but uh, uh, yeah so 
things uh, rather i'm i'm i would say you know in my autumn years <laughs> i'm discovering things in my autumn years i should have started sharing maybe 50 years ago but i'm doing that only now in the last 20 years oh you had to live a life before all of it came out i guess <laughs> yeah i guess so Bina, it's time for some poems from you. Since we were talking a lot about um, about Song of a Rebel and mm. how these things disturb me, I I also want to say that you know I I I like peace and harmony and mm. I'm moved by all of that. So I shall read Ode to Utopia. Wonderful. Ode to Utopia. It was as if the sky was washed clean, sparkling like a new minted coin. It was as if it believed in hope, as if the dark clouds were in exile, banished forever. It was as if the storm had taken a sabbatical and become a monk in the mountains, as if politicians had drunk from the sea of soma and surrendered as slaves of peace as if their corrupt skins and scheming minds had peeled away it was as if all walls and boundaries had blurred into one language love as if the tree of life was luminous with fruit of all colors and creeds communing in harmony it was as if rag bhairav was in dialogue with mozart's nocturne and a shamisen strummed to the tinkle of the african kalimba it was as if spring had migrated into our lives for permanent residency and then and then i swept away the mist from my eyes and then i woke up It's so wonderful. I completely love this poem. Thank you. Uh remember uh, did I tell you about kids today uh and how precocious they are and and how they say certain things that mm-hmm. uh, uh really astonish you. Yeah, yeah. So there was this little girl all of 6 years old and um I will just tell you about her so this little girl all of 6 years old asked her mother who is my daughter's childhood friend asked her um amma do you um, also scream on mute <laughs> and and her mother said uh, what scream on mute why so she said you know when in in my class my teacher says uh, tells us child open your book child mm-hmm. stand up child sit down and that is when i want to scream on mute because we have names why can't she call us by our names so she was talking about identity that i am i am aki and why can't she say aki you know akila why does she have to say child then every if she calls everyone child child they all become one then there's no identity this was a 6 year old 6 year old little girl saying this so when i heard it i i i wrote this poem uh, a poem called do you also scream on mute do you also scream on mute she said just as i do when the teacher calls me a child and not by my name fracturing my identity and stealing my 6 years of living on this planet like i'm a nobody what's in a name you might say what's identity it's energy filling the hollow of my vessel completing the contours of my earth body before it transcends into the universe before it burns into nothing listen unmute your scream 
before you are nothing. This is so wonderful. You took it somewhere else. You took the story somewhere else altogether. <laughs> yes, it it travels. So I I I told <clears throat> the mother that please don't read this to the little child because it goes somewhere else. Maybe when she becomes a mother yes. or a grandmother, you can yes. share the poem with her. <laughs> so right. Do you think poetry makes makes a difference in the world? in an overall scheme of things i question that too and um, but so many wonderful poets are still alive today poets who died long ago whether it was shakespeare or you know uh, you mm. know whoever ramanujan or kamala devi or keats or you know mm. so they they are still alive and we are still enjoying their poems and being inspired by them and i'm sure they're impacting us maybe we are a very small number of people on earth mm-hmm. who are um, being impacted by these poems but but we we're still there even if you're an atom and you're just something so minuscule in the universe but while you're alive and breathing if it means something to you that's enough i think i think uh, a, a poem which makes a difference to you as a person even if it's minuscule i think that that itself has is something which has served its purpose really exactly see see haiku mm. when you read haiku in three lines in uh, five seven five syllables you convey everything you want to convey you know so right it's it's magical actually <laughs> who are the poets you admire beena uh actually so many but right now i i'm um many many poets i can well I, imagine yeah yeah it'll take me a long time <laughs> to tell you who okay, let me rephrase what. it um poets you keep revisiting and the poets you've enjoyed reading contemporary poets you've enjoyed reading hmm see as um growing up i for me you know we we were totally into western poets mm-hmm. and uh, i i i used to find ts eliot very inspiring and um uh, yeah a lot of those poets and then over the years so many poets you know like derek walcott and um I know many many poets I am now a little muddled in my head to tell you exactly which poets but uh, several have have uh, you know but hasn't there been have, a fabulous explosion of indian poets also in the last few years in fact in fact there has in fact uh, i am totally in wonderment of the the number of very good poets we have in india right now and and uh, they are writing very good poetry and it it seems to be an explosion as if like they were all hidden like my poems in the closet and suddenly they all you know uh, emerged you know like like a huge flood and um, i i'm quite amazed quite amazed every day i read names and uh, i encounter new poets and it's not just in india i find because i'm wired to the world i find everywhere there are such you know poets so many i was i was on a session just two nights back of world poets and there were amazing poets from lebanon from latvia from um, argentina and you know uganda and we had a marvelous session sharing our poems and they were all very powerful poems so it's it's like these were names i'd never heard of before but you know they were all there and it was amazing 
Oh, it's a very exciting time. I totally agree with you. Mm-hmm. Really exciting. So another poem, please. Oh. Yes. <laughs> Won't let you go so easily. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Shall I read something called the waves? Sure. The waves are waves. They come and go through infinity's song of ebb and flow. The sands of time count you and I what we've written before we die. While some have lived with love and giving, some have lived with hate and killing. While some will bloom in memories, some will rot in our histories. The saints and rogues they come and go in sacred waters and blood they flow. and every day the swords and knives are sharpened to assault our lives your voice is gagged your tongue is nipped the lynchers talk they have you stripped of all your rights the rights you claimed they want you dead or maimed and tamed the waves are waves they come and go through infinity's song of ebb and flow thus plant more love let's warm the climb let's heal the hurt the wounds of time wow this is wonderful and you read so well veena i don't know about that you really do you really do it's it's so it, it's so arresting Thank but tell me you. when you do sit down to write a poem what is the methodology you follow from start to completion i don't know there's no method sometimes they are poems that rhyme sometimes they just flow the thoughts flow there's no rhyming um it i don't know it just just happens it's nothing is premeditated mm-hmm. are you very elaborate editor of your poems or is it mostly first cut and that is something which you go At with the most i might change a word or a comma or a you know a, mm-hmm. a break a para but nothing more than that is there a time you write uh, prefer writing in uh, or is it something time, which comes it it comes but mostly as i told you i'm really busy with gallery through the day so it's in the punctuations of that time that i take a break and if a thought comes to me i write often it happens in the middle of the night when i wake up and i'm not able to get sleep <laughs> that's when i sit and write it could be 3 in the morning or anything like that you know so um yes there's there's no there's no discipline i wish there was discipline mm-hmm. shall we end with a poem i actually want to read a a funny poem do we have time uh-huh. for that do, don't worry about time just absolutely uh, fine yeah i want to share this it's it's a very unbina poem Okay <laughs> but, I, but I want to share this okay please it's it's about um the extinct species and this okay. happened during the pandemic and that's what made me think of it okay mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's titled i took a bus to nowhere okay and it's an ode to the extinct i took a bus to nowhere it halted at nameless road stops its passengers were faceless and its driver wore a mohawk and through the eerie journey what did i see i saw a dodo and a dinosaur run around a baobab tree and further down the highway an indian auroch trundled by playing hide and seek with a xerxes blue butterfly there near an open field a gleeful golden toad sat on a gigantopithecus and they cartwheeled down the road as we turned a corner 
a Tasmanian tiger yawned, while a woolly mammoth read Trump jokes laughing on a lawn. We had no destination. We rolled into a cloud to find Lenin with extinct species singing Imagine clear and loud. And believe me, as you read this, what else did I see? I saw Hitler, Mao and Stalin. I saw Frida, Kamala Das and Chaplin taking selfies with Gandhi. Blissful on cloud nine, I urged a bishop's ooh. Let's launch a petition to save our world. Let's do, let's do. We sang out our mission on social media and TV. The angels and the devils signed in with galactic glee. Together we worked to deconstruct our planet E while the bus to nowhere laughed and laughed at bishops who and me. Oh my God, <laughs> this is incredible. This is like a nursery rhyme for adults. <laughs> yeah, it is. It actually is. <laughs> this, you, you must have had the time of your life writing this. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I really enjoyed because again, it was a very visual thing. You know, it was all in my head and all these ex- extinct all of them are extinct or dead, you know, and and uh, so they were all sort of coming and going in my mind, and that's how <laughs> the oh, poem delightful. Oh my god, I have to hear it again. <laughs> Frida taking selfies with Gandhi. I mean, I'll never have that image come out of my head ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a lot of fun writing it. Oh, this is wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> Veena, anything yeah. which you feel I should have asked you, which I still haven't. We've had a lovely, lovely conversation. So anything you feel you, you would like to talk about, which I might have missed out. No, I can't. I'm, I'm, I'm just so appreciative of your patience and listening to my jabber all no, through. it's so interesting. <laughs> I um, I don't know I'm, I I just appreciate what you've done and what Red River does and what you do. I have really amazing respect for you guys. Bina, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I, I I've had so much fun, and the the life you live so gently and so elegantly is also a life which is so full of meaning, and that is not a small thing. Really, I, I, I can't even tell you how much I admire what you write and what you do. It's, it's such an inspiration. You will say, no, it's not, but it is. Believe me. I'll, I'll try to believe you. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Indeed. Thank you, Sunil. You've been great. Thank you so much. This was Red River Sessions, presented by Uncut Poetry. You can find books published by Red River online at redriver.co.in and in select bookstores. And Uncut Poetry is the immensely popular poetry podcast of original poetry by Sunil Bhandari. You can hear Uncut Poetry on Spotify, iTunes, Ghana, Pocket Casts or anywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, talk about it, write about it, share it and subscribe to Uncut Poetry Presents Red River Sessions so you never miss an episode. See you soon.